In today's episode of Will Work for Purpose, I'm joined by Mark, who runs a podcasting conglomerate or collective called Climactic. And together we talk about existentialism, climate change, moral obligations, uh, economics. Uh, we kind of really paint with some broad strokes here, and uh, we, we cover a lot of ground. Uh, but I think you might find it valuable as we talk a little bit about what someone could do given our uncertain times. How can you act even though things seem to be getting worse? So without further ado, here is the latest episode of Will Work for Purpose. Welcome to Will Work for Purpose. Today we're joined with uh, joined by Mark, who runs the Climactic po- uh, podcast or podcasting uh, collective or conglomerate. And uh, he was once himself a podcaster, and now he works in a corporate pos- podcasting job apart from his personal projects. And uh, he mainly works in uh, climate change and climate change awareness and activism. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Adam. So happy to be here. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's going to be one of those conversations where it's all over the place. Sorry about that, Adam. Oh, that's, that's all right. I love those. They're, um, they are the best, the tangential obscure, the ones that go places where you, where you're not, you know, fully aware they're headed. The things I know something about probably aren't the things you like, I should be expected to know something about. And Mm -hmm. then like, if you want to talk to me about American sports or anything, I will have no clue at all, but I don't Mm -hmm. think it's that type of show. So I'm safe in my lack of sports trivia. Mm-hmm. That's the brilliant thing about, I guess you could say the brilliant thing about the show is that it, it's applicable to any field, at least the topics of dialogue and conversation. I think in particular, uh, I think it's, I, th- I think it's very relevant to uh, climate change in general, or that the idea that things are winding down, uh, things are, you know, mm. becoming worse and worse. Uh, and like we find ourselves in, you know, we like, there are a multiplicity of challenges that we might face, you know, like each era has its thing, uh, so to speak, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, some generations have a plague. We have a, a plague. Some generations have wars like World War One, World War Two, uh, the Cold War. Uh, you know, there are sort of like generation defining things, you know, and you could say maybe ours would be something like the COVID pandemic, uh, climate change. And then in particular, like there's a, uh, an epidemic of meaninglessness or mental health issues that are arising. And some, you know, part of it could be kind of lumped in with that, you know, like we, the fact that we're even aware of something like climate change certainly can impact uh, people's mental well-being. you know, um, and there, there are all sorts of uh, climate related anxieties that people develop. Um, uh, and, you know, but, but so, you know, like, I, I think that there's, there's sort of like um, an interlacing or sort of like a coming together of these, the, that, those sort of concepts. So mm-hmm. um, how, how exactly did you get involved in the whole climate change uh, scene and, um, raising awareness yeah. for that and things like that. Yeah. Um, so when I started, I, I started a little show. It, it was the show was called Climactic, and then that's the the flagship of now. This network is formed around. So a couple of years ago, I started a show called Climactic, and that was really an interview show that gave me an excuse to talk to people I found interesting or I saw that were engaging with climate in some way, whether they were uh, volunteering to do beach cleanups on the weekend or they were on the city council and trying to pass a climate emergency declaration, or they were writing books on the topic. Um, I I really started my podcast as the first step for me into engaging with the climate crisis and engaging with climate change. Because before that, I was only vaguely aware, like in the way that I think we all are now very much in 2020, like I'd, I, I knew that Inconvenient Truth was a movie, but I don't have some vivid memory of like Al Gore's documentary that was the light bulb moment for many people. I didn't really have a moment like that. And I was always asking those questions of my interview guests and some had really profound kind of, this is the turning point in the road for me where my trajectory changed. And in light of the knowledge of the climate crisis, I went this way instead of carrying on this way. Other people, it's a more gradual curve in mine was definitely that kind of, you don't turn the Titanic 90 degrees at a time, you turn it you know, half a degree at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was two years I spent living in China uh, as an English teacher. And it was very much uh, the experience over there of uh, the city I was in was was a third tier city, really small by Chinese standards. Uh, the province it was in, um, 
uh, Jiangsu province, the, the capital of that's Nanjing. Many people might know Nanjing as the site of a World War II massacre, a former capital of um, one of the iterations of China in earlier periods. But the city I was in, Shuzhou, um, was like not even in the top five biggest cities in that province, but it was a city of six million people. So the scale, <laughs> it's just immense. Yeah. So so two years of living there and, you know, you say China and people are like, oh, Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Chengdu, Guangzhou, visited Hong Kong a lot. And, you know, people have like a mindset of like what China is. But the city I was in was like, imagine West Virginia of China. It was a coal mining town. Largely, there was coal power plants right in the city and the environment. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, all right. Let's see. He's trying to be Simba. Mm. There we go. The um, the environment of that city was just completely devastated. Uh, there was two rivers running through the city. They were largely stagnant. They were fully green. Algae had taken over. You just see dead fish floating around all the time. We, I was there for two years. As I said, there was five days of blue sky. The rest was just this slate gray. And so you'd, I was teaching children. I was teaching a lot of like like primary school and like kindergarten age kids. And you'd be like, what color is the sun? And they would say brown. And you're like, yes, I guess it is here. Um, so it was like a slow awakening for me of like, oh, this is what happens when economy is prioritized over environment for three, four decades. Um, and you can't really fault that. The, the economic miracle, the uplifting of people I saw was amazing. I'd go on bike trips out into the country and life was miserable out in the countryside uh, it was it was better in the city if it was absolutely crazy busy and hectic um so i got to australia after that and i was like hey everything is good the sky is blue the air is sweet and uh I'm, I'm safe from all this environmental devastation stuff then i met some friends who were like did you know australia is the second biggest uh emitter exporter of carbon emissions in the world do you know only Saudi Arabia is responsible for more emissions than Australia? Do you know Australia has the highest per person emissions in the world? And I'm like, don't tell me this. I'm enjoying my life here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's when I was like, okay, um, this is a worry, but surely it's a worry for my kids or grandkids. Then I, I started reading more of the science and actually listening to the alarm bells and klaxons going off. And I learned that, no, it's actually really important what I do in my lifetime. Uh, that this is probably the most important thing to be involved in. That's how I got started. <laughs> I mean, that, that that's a really uh, amazing story because I've never been in any place that's been so, uh, I would say, like deeply affected by, uh, you know, uh, what would you say, our deeds in the world? You know, like there's like you can see a lot of places that are like deforested and like but but there's not a lot of one to one parallels like, you know, this smoke is going to the air and uh, also the sky is brown, you know, like. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you There was no sense of distance. Uh, mm -hmm. The cause to effect was right there. And really in practical terms, like to use, I don't know, Star Wars as a metaphor or something, it was really was felt like being on another planet and not the kind you want to visit. It was like mm -hmm. a industrialized, nearly, I, I call it post-apocalyptic because really it was an environmental apocalypse. You'd, you'd go to these parks, right? These beautifully manicured, lovely parks with this green, verdant, vibrant grass and all the grass would be fenced off and you weren't allowed mm -hmm. to walk on it and there were security guards and they would immediately come over and tell you to get off the grass. You're not allowed to touch grass in China. There isn't any. It's wow. like available. You can look wow. at it though. <laughs> wow. Um, so I, I guess, um, so you, you went to China, you had this, um, you had your eyes opened essentially by the environment there. And then you came to Australia and you learned like Australia's, you know, a player in this, in this game, so to speak. Like they may not yeah. necessarily be feeling like the uh, direct impact, at least yet anyways, uh, or maybe there are, maybe there is some data, you know, out there that, that says it is experiencing, uh, you know, some of those changes, but um, certainly you didn't see a brown sun in Australia. Um, so except for those fire days. Yeah. Oh, was, right. That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, so uh, I guess what, what spurred you to action? Like you heard the data points while you were in Australia and you had this past experience, but um, from my understanding, most people are unwilling to like change their, you know, barring um, particular like um, 
life-threatening events. So even like people who experience near-death events don't always change. You know, it really depends on their uh, framework or understanding of uh, like their underlying like what's called framework of meaning is what it's called in like in psychology or whatever. Like it depends on what mm-hmm. their framework is uh, that the event takes place in. You know, and so like for instance. Um, there are people who get uh, in drunk driving accidents, but they don't stop drinking, you know, like, so um, you heard the data and you had the experience, but what was the sort of like, you know, why, why did you decide to, you know, jump in, you know? Yeah, to, to completely, I guess, go back on what I said before, there wasn't an inciting incident. There wasn't like a, a light bulb moment there. There kind of mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. the conditions had to all be right. And that was because of other reasons. But um. I'd got a job here in Melbourne at a, a software company. It was selling like point of sales, like the software mm-hmm. that runs on the touch screens in cafes and restaurants to let you sell stuff. Um, I was yeah, selling this software to, to high-end restaurants. I was doing a lot of driving around this beautiful state of Victoria that Melbourne's in, um, getting to see a lot of really beautiful places, feeling really privileged because I was. Uh, and then I went to a conference and uh, a person I'd, I'd met and been quite impressed with, a, a woman who ran her own consultancy on sustainability and food waste. I'm going to try to kick my cat out of this room. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, go ahead. No problem. Momo. So I, I was at this conference and uh, a person I'd met previously, like in this field, who did, um, she, she did sustainability consulting for high-end hospitality groups. And that's the one thing we have in spades here in Australia is like, Fine dining and hospitality is, is a big business uh, for the Australian economy. Mm. And so some of those groups are starting to get serious about, well, starting to get serious about how they're perceived and they want to be seen as sustainable. They want to be measuring their carbon emissions and offsetting and all this stuff. And so I was having a chat to this woman who's named Liz and, and Liz was like, Mark, do you know, like, what do you know about food waste? And I said, well, I don't like it. Like uh, I've done my time as a waiter. It always used to bug me when someone spent $30, $40 on a meal and then they would send half away to the bin. Um, it, it bothered me that we don't build menus around uh, offering more portion options, um, that we don't let people just pay what, you know, buy what they actually want to eat. We want things to look big and bountiful on plates and everything. And as, as someone who grew up in kind of a rural environment, it bugs me that like it's a valuable commodity. Like you're, you're putting pig food into the bin, but that's kind of where it ended for me. I'd, I'd you'd scrape a plate, you'd go into a big bin. It would smell bad by the end of the shift. And whoever uh, the manager didn't like that day would have to take it out to the, the dumpster. Mm. That's, that's where my knowledge ended. Mm, yeah. And she I, said, um, well, sorry. Oh, go for well, it. I was just going to offer a little bit of like an anecdotal story. I, I washed dishes in a, like a steakhouse here uh, and my God, there, um, there was this thing called Lobster Fest there, basically, or it was it was like Lobster Night or something like that. And uh, I mean, and lobster is like a, it's a high end food, especially where I'm at. It's not like I live in the de- I live in Missouri, okay, which is like the dead center of the states. And uh, so lobster is like really expensive here because there's nowhere you can get it naturally. And there were just um, I. I mean, it looked almost like uh, something out of a horror movie with the sheer volume of like leftover bits of lobster and lobster shells everywhere. Yeah. I mean, like and and like people, you know, throw away chunks of that uh, of lobster food or they would send back. I remember one guy had sent back a 48 ounce, uh, a 48 ounce porterhouse steak. He didn't want it. He's like, and so you can't serve it again. Like it's just, (laughs) and that's like, it's like $150 steak, you know, like it's, and I'm sitting here washing dishes for whatever it was, $10 an hour. Like, (laughs) and there's this, you know, people just throwing away luxurious high end food. Um, Yeah. And there, there's so much to unpack in that, right? Like there's so many, it's such a confronting thing. Um, But then to add on to that of like, Methane, this lovely natural gas that occurs when food decomposes. It's it's what gets produced in cows' stomachs as they ruminate and as that that grass that really imagine eating grass, not a lot of nutrients, it sits in like one of the, like the top couple of stomachs of their four stomach system, and out they belch methane happily all day. And that methane is like that's that's why the earth is habitable is because we had some bacteria that started producing methane and over millennia we developed this lovely greenhouse gas layer and methane it's like 
you, you know, that guy throwing away that steak, mm-hmm. he can, he can drive his Mustang for a month and not worry about the emissions. Cause he did way more damage by throwing away a 48 ounce steak. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it, I was confronted with that, that I, I, all of a sudden I didn't have a distance anymore. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I was driving a car around as the sole occupant doing hundreds of miles a week of driving to sell software that was only marginally better maybe than what people had for an exorbitant price. Cause it was the same stuff used by the Sydney opera house restaurant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like to be faced with, okay, not only that, but also the industry I'm in also just has fundamental structural problems that are directly leading to cyclones in Indonesia. And I just, I can't, I couldn't distance myself from it anymore. So even though there's embedded carbon in everything we do, um, the timing is right. I wasn't satisfied anymore. And so I, I left the job. I, I gave my notice and left on the same day. And, um, you know, cause they don't, they don't want an unmotivated salesman. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it worked out well. Yeah. And I, I started working at a, um, a chain of what, um, what we call here op shops, opportunity shops, but like value village in the States mm. is an example. Oh, okay. um, mm-hmm. Charity shops. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started, started working there instead to kind of be a bomb for the soul Mm, yeah (laughs) and started this podcast instead Mm. um so uh was it the moment you decided like quitting your job is a very like that's sort of like a major step like that's like um you know that's like one of the major like a major you made a major life decision over like a, a moral quandary that you had you know um which i have to commend you on because most people um they may note moral inconsistencies within themselves and lack the you know, courage or confidence to, you know, uh, make that change, you know, or make that conversion or that switch, you know, from, you know, what you know, whatever it is, like the, holding the job that's endangering loads of people to, you know, going to working at, a, you know, a charity shop, uh, like that's a, that's a, you know, that's a major life decision. Um, we're and and, uh, I, I guess obviously you're, you're, you're thinking or you're, um, what would you call your imposition or your your goal uh, towards bettering uh, our attitudes towards climate change and things like that? I guess I never really didn't didn't stop at that moment, obviously, like, because you own this uh, conglomerate. Um, were there any other like changes that came like while you were in this like incubating incubating pe- period at this uh, charity shop? Like, were you doing other things in your life, too, as a result of these like revelations? Yeah, and I, I'm definitely not any kind of paragon on. I'm not an example of mm-hmm. what to do on personal action around climate, and um, you know, really, there's to, to maybe talk about sort of this this age we're in and climate action and kind of what works and and mm-hmm. how to think about it. Um, I was kind of thinking about this before and. What you what you hear and what you're going to hear a lot now in the states with with the election and with the start of a new administration, everything is that um, people who are very concerned about climate for for very good reasons, they they want to go into emergency panic like five alarm fire mode, and you'll hear this mobilization language and and you know Green New Deal um, evoking you know the the New Deal. <laughs> well, is it just it was just called the New Deal, wasn't it? Of you know, yeah, of the I, um, yeah, the FDR. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, even but even before that, Roosevelt, yeah, FDR. Da, 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 da. Yes. I'm, I'm <laughs> American miser- history. Yeah, I'm miserably awful at history, geography. Uh, I couldn't find my way out of a brown paper bag if I, you know, had, even if I was tr- like with a GPS, probably like it's very bad. Um, no, no worries. It was, yeah, sorry. It was, mm-hmm. it was FDR, the new deal. It was, you know, the construction of the, the Hoover dam and the, the national highway system in the States, that, that era of massive civic works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what people like, you know, I don't want to say people on the left because you do have now Republicans and conservatives really getting concerned about climate change. Um, but people who are like, whoa, okay the talk around 1.5 degrees, two degrees Celsius, the thought of um, basically California level bushfires every summer and ice-free Arctic, all, all this stuff. So like the, the facts are really bad and people want to jump to um, 
a World War II scale mobilization and kind of use use a war mentality as kind of the the metaphor. Um, I I don't agree with that, and and there's a lot of social research around like you can't sustain that level of of panic over the decades we're going to need. So mm. thinking about it before, I'm like I what I've done in my personal life and trying to do with the the podcast network is like create like the like raise the background level the background volume on mm -hmm. climate change awareness and engagement and make it way more of like a cold war level engagement which is if you and me were having a chat at a at a cafe or a, a university dorm or you know out in the world in mm -hmm. 1968 we we maybe wouldn't be talking about we like we wouldn't say the name cold war but we we'd be talking about politics we'd be talking about things informed by that mm -hmm. and and that's i think that's the level we need to get to with you know we just even the 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 language around it um climate emergency has been used quite a lot down here in australia uh but but i you know climate crisis it kind of echoes that cold war cold war crisis the 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 simmering nature of it all um and for me what i've what i've done is i've I've taken this, this, like I've gone through a few waves of, of panic and existential terror and, mm. and, and trying to go like, okay, that's it. I am personally no more waste. I don't eat meat anymore. I've said that about four times in the last two years. I, you know, I, I didn't own a car for a couple of years. Now I do again. Uh, but like I've, I've been through these waves of like, okay, I'm to be able to talk about what, okay, <laughs> here's a weird <laughs> metaphor. Mm. And I, I we're probably going to talk about figurative language. And I love mm -hmm. it. I love how you talk about that on the show if you want to be pro-america during a cold war dynamic you personally have to be gi joe you mm -hmm. have to be joe patriot no you mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. like you can read dostoevsky and enjoy it and mm -hmm. still be pro-america during the cold war yeah yeah so yeah i mean i totally agree with you and like a lot of people have that well so in like so i'm starting to be a clinical psychologist and whenever you study cognitive therapy there are these things that people fall into um which uh the founders of cognitive therapy think are the root of pathology or the root of neurosis or neurotic thinking like a mental illness essentially and essentially they're, they're called cognitive distortions and cognitive distortions are typical ways that people think illogically and so like so that's sort of like all or nothing, all all or nothing thinking, which is a cognitive distortion. It's either I'm GI Joe or I'm I'm uh, I don't know. I drive a Hummer. Stalin. And I, yeah, Stalin. Yeah, yeah. I I hate America. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and and it's simply not true. You know, like it, it's it's okay to get one percent better or half a percent better or even point zero one percent better. Like so long as you're trending upward. You know, like. I guess people get caught up in particular with climate change because it seems like the the language is uh, I don't know what I guess you could say alarmist like it's very uh, urgent you know um, and yeah. so people think that one percent one percent's not good enough I need you know thirty percent I need forty percent better every year and so um, yeah. yeah maybe you could speak to that yeah yeah it's it's very frustrating uh, it's 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 a tough dynamic and we need smart people like you involved basically Adam we, we need everyone involved because because right now the the first movers on this you know how like um like the iPhone came out over 10 years ago now and mm -hmm. the first people to get it they really loved it and they were evangelists for it and they were telling everyone they should get it mm -hmm. <clears throat> we've kind of had for the last 10 years uh, like, like okay the science has been known for there's a, you know, I'm half Kiwi and I'm quite proud of the fact that in like the 1850s, a small regional newspaper in New Zealand, actually like the area I'm from, Waikato, which is cow country, to bring it back to cows, they said, we've noticed a, 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 um, a cause and effect from burning a coal and the increase in, and the increase in carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. We, we can measure this for a long time. So we know that there was cause and effect as reported in 1850. And so like the science has gotten amazingly just progressively better and the slow mm -hmm. march of science as it does. But like the, the first times it's kind of gotten out into the public, it sadly, it wasn't like, Hey, here's a problem. Here's a great opportunity to not do this. Mm -hmm. Instead it was like, Hey, here's a problem. Everyone who's involved in causing this problem needs to stop immediately now. And we're not going to talk about 
routes or alternatives or off ramps. We're just going to talk about the problem. And we've had like a problem fixation for 40 years. And then in the mm -hmm. last 10 years, as the problem's gotten much worse, we're now talking about solutions, but the solutions have to be quite radically different to mm -hmm. our current setup. So it's like the people who are shouting aren't wrong. They're just not effective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to be effective, we might miss out on the best case scenarios. But that's going to have to be the case. But try telling that to someone whose island is going underwater, like within our lifetimes, and who's got seven, eight, nine, maybe 20 generations of family who've lived on the island. Heartbreaking, like knowing that they're like people are losing graveyards now mm. on like on islands in Fiji, and you've got even more low lying places, Tokelau, Tuvalu, and, and Australians, especially like. It's really uncomfortable for us because they're our neighbors. We're kind of like their big brother. Mm -hmm. And we really like to pretend Australia is a little island 10 miles west of California. Mm -hmm. And we're in, you know, we are Asia Pacific. <laughs> we right. are on the ring of fire. Um, sorry, long, long answer. But like the, yeah, uh, people right now who are engaged in climate change have fallen down the, I'm right. Therefore, I need to scream at you that I'm right until you agree mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm unfortunately mm. yeah i i find that that's uh that's unfortunately the case with so many things uh and like for whatever reason like uh there's a good book um i've only read cursory bits about it um and like i've heard it referenced and i've listened to like several talks on it but it's um the righteous mind by uh jonathan Haidt, um and it's and it's it's sort of about this that idea where like those who possess in one you know, some sort of idea like the world is being affected by climate change. Like there's this uh, impetus or this like need to um, uh, like uh, crusade and be like a zealot in some sense. And so you, you're like instead of con instead of converting or, or getting people to, on your side, you're just like pushing them further and further away. And uh, I actually of all of all things, I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier today and um i guess matthew mcconaughey is doing a book tour um he just released his memoir or something like that and so at least over the past like month or so he's been going and like talking a lot of places and uh, he was talking about this in terms of uh oh did you have something to say can i can i guess the title of the book uh sure is it is it my life as a handsome man bourbon salesman <laughs> yeah that's right lincoln that's what it should say. Um, I don't actually, I'm not even sure. I think the book is called Green Lights. That may be what it's called. Um, but it's about how it's a like, nice subtle reference to privilege. Like yeah. I had nothing but green lights my whole life. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it, so, you know, it sounds very like, um, anyway, the way he's talking about it, he's, he's referring to, um, he, was, he wasn't speaking to the book exactly in one of the interviews that I heard him talking about, but he um, was talking about... Uh, uh, how the whole uh, pandemic was pitched uh, to like uh, how for whatever reason, at least in America, the whole mask situation became a left right situation, you know, and uh, in some sense, it was the way that the uh, mask was pitched to uh, the right, you know, the right wingers by the left wingers. And, so, you know, and so uh, people on the right, had, you know, they're uh, trending towards traditional values. They he felt that it would have been better for them to package the mask idea or the stay at home orders as a like uh, as like a fearless duty or something like that. Yep. Like, they're, you know, like the rhetoric around whatever uh, like movement really, really matters, you know, and like but mm -hmm. yeah, you have to be willing to like um, I don't know if you want to say stoop to the level of the person who disagrees with you because it's you know but but you, you need That's to one use... way to put it but yeah you have to speak the language of the person you're speaking to exactly yeah. otherwise you end up you know shooting past each other you know like if you always maintain the high ground you know like you're often you'll shoot over their heads you know so it's like one of those things that's just um for whatever reason we just have to get better at as a as a uh, what do you say as a species i guess really yeah <laughs> at least absolutely. As, as americans in particular probably <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I think we really do. Um, you know, don't, don't let the fact like everyone thinks they're right. Don't let the fact you think mm -hmm. you're right uh, make you stop listening to the other person and mm -hmm. yeah, like actually engaging with them. Um, I, I guess so. So what I've done or what I've tried to do with with climactic and it's 
it's funny the the use of the word conglomerate. Um, mm-hmm. I've been you know, I've done some other interviews and stuff about it, and they're like, oh, you know, you're building an empire, or you know, you're you're building like a media company, and I'm like, no, it's really uh, it's a collective, and everyone owns their own shows, and mm-hmm. it's at will, and it's more like an artist's uh, grouping, an artist collective of I don't know, like boho, soho, Pollock, I don't know enough about these things, but it's uh, it's definitely less um, like my day job, which is a lot more corporate media. Mm-hmm. And a lot more like, oh, we're just experimenting and throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. But the idea with it is that like, how do we take something that you're interested in and kind of intersect that or bring in the fact that climate change is happening, the world is changing because of it. How is this going to affect the thing you're interested in or passionate about or that lights you up? So we don't have a philosophy and climate intersectional show yet, but we may and, you know, well, we'll see how your interview goes. <laughs> <laughs> but we really do focus on on Australia and, and New Zealand and, and the South Pacific. And really, because there's enough content being made in America. I, I, I talk to a lot of Australians who are like, hey, I, I pitch them. I'm like, hey, you're doing a great thing. You started this group that does beach cleanups five years ago. You've picked up this many thousands of tons of beach plastic. You've got a great story. Can you come on and tell me about it? And they say, no, I'm not a, I, I don't have anything to say. I'm, I'm not a mm. media person. I'm like, why can't you be more American about it? I'm offering you a microphone. This is your 15 seconds of fame. That's your God given right. Like <laughs> for better or worse, America has that, that streak mm. that I think, mm-hmm. I think we can thank Hollywood for it. The idea that like, we've been going out of the studios to the street with a microphone for, decades and everyone mm-hmm. thinks like everyone has the moment of like okay what am i going to say when when eventually someone puts a mic in my face whereas to australians it's like no one's ever offered me that i think you're trying to trick me it's like i'm not yeah that's uh, that definitely i you know there are a lot of things that i'm blinded to because i've only lived in america you know uh, but there are some things that i've like you know that idea that everyone's waiting for their 15 seconds of fame like you i mean you can hear it everywhere like uh, and especially like social media, I don't know. All most of my friends are Americans, but you know they they talk as if they you know they're speaking to you know a packed stadium of forty five thousand people. Whenever they say something like some aphorism or something that they saw in a you know pottery barn you know vase or something like that, like they 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 speak these like um, cliche truisms and they talk as if they were some. I don't know, big luminary. wig, you know, luminary, yeah. exactly. You know, like there, there's some sort of like um, uh, gift to uh, earth and that they're, you know, they're the ones who are enlightened and they have the truth and they, you know, whatever it is. Like, um, I, I guess I wasn't really aware that that was an exclusively American phenomenon, but I can believe it, um, you know. Yeah, uh, it's kind of, I think Australia is not a very densely packed place. I think mm. when you, like, I, I noticed that starting to come out in China. Uh, because competition is fierce. You know, there's mm-hmm. only so many jobs, there's only so many spots. And one interesting thing, maybe if, if we can do a little philosophy rabbit hole, one, one mm-hmm. thing I really noticed in living in China is that um, the idea of empathy, I, I, I'm not, I think it's very environmental because I've I met so many really good kind people over there who really valued family. They valued their friends. They were very nationally patriotic, but mm-hmm. everyone in the middle could kind of stuff off. Like if you're waiting on your, your e-bike to join a main road and you get an opportunity, you take it, of course, mm-hmm. because otherwise you're just not going to get into the flow of traffic. But if you, if you yield to someone, if you give them a chance to go, then the person behind them is going to go. The person behind them is going to go. It's going to be 200 cars. You're going to die sitting in your car waiting to have your turn again because and you just can't. You can't afford the luxury of empathy in a society with that much demand on scarce resources or you know that many people trying to use the infrastructure that exists. And it's just like good people completely devoid of empathy for, for one another. Mm, yeah it blew my mind like is that does that make sense to you philosophically yeah yeah so uh, you know they're like like so there are some like uh like anthropologically like when you look at cultures like throughout the world uh you you notice that a lot of the things like um there are certain like uh what would you say like factors or values that 
that transcend space and time. Like, like for instance, honor is one thing that's like in every culture, right? Uh, but the way that they express their honor is different, you know. Um, but what I what I was mainly thinking about whenever you were saying that there's like this lack of empathy due to the increase in population, it reminds me of um, something that uh, like. I've been reading the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn and the Gulag Archipelago is his book that some hold like he won a Nobel Prize for it. And, uh, you know, it it uh, did a lot for bringing down the wall and like really helping us understand what was going on in Russia for, you know, 60 years, basically. And uh, in parts of it, he says something like, uh, how can a man who's warm understand one that is freezing or one who's cold, you know? And so, um, you know, like, you, and, and he also talks a bit about in his chapter on the blue caps and the blue caps are like the Russian SS basically, but in some ways they were worse, you know, because they policed, uh, they policed the civilian life, uh, to, you know, in ways that the SS uh, didn't and, uh, and they had power that the SS didn't, but, um, both are equally bad, but, um, he, he talks about, um, who, who, if given the chance to to don that heavenly blue cap, would turn it down? Who, if given the chance, would uh, be able to? And he lists all the privileges that the blue caps got. You know, any any partners they wanted, uh, any job they wanted, any amount of like whatever they saw, they could just take it. You know, you walked into your governor's office and you could just boss him around because you could arrest him like that. You know, under any cause. You know. Um, and so it's like, in some sense, like you, like when you had mentioned that the empathy was tied to the environment in some way, it's like in, in a lot of ways it is, you know, and it takes a lot to transcend, um, it takes a lot to transcend your environment. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he talks about like most of the people in the gulags confess to crimes they didn't do, uh, just because of the environment, just because of the torture and the prison system, like they, they were, they would they would have done anything and that was in some sense that those confessions were products of their environment or mm -hmm. the lies were sort of like um were just inborn to that you know who, you know who who wouldn't lie to save themselves themselves and their family or their family in particular you know like maybe i can suffer you know maybe i can suffer a you know great yep. great pains but what about my son my daughter my wife my you know my brother my mother you know like um you know, the game changes in that sense. And so it's like, mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you when you say that something like, you know, the environment, and, and certainly I, I think you're right about the densely packed nature of China and, and some places in America, you know, like New York in particular is very famous for its inhos, uh, inhospitality or its lack of yep. hospitality, you know. And um, I do think that, you know, I, and I talked about this in one of my previous episodes with uh, J.K. Rieke when he, he talks about small communities and like returning to village life in that sense, you know, and that that's uh, I think that that's a very that um, that would be one of the most beneficial things I think we could do is return to local like small communities and things like that, um, uh, you know, disparately populated cities or whatever. Um, but, you know, that's something I'm not sure about even how that would, you know, how that could be pulled off. But um yeah, there's so many facets to it. I mean, like, how do you uh, bring in topics of justice and equality always really complicate things because, mm -hmm. you know, you have to actually assess, okay, how, how much resources do we have? And then we have to have an uncomfortable conversation on some things around, okay, there might be some types, uh, some stratus of society who don't see themselves as privileged who do have more than, and this it's, wow, that sounds really Soviet, kind of the, the reallocation equally of resources but like yeah. if we if we don't think about that while talking about the idea of decentralizing and and not not maybe de-urbanizing but de like yeah de-densifying mm -hmm. then we are like baking in inequality into a new system we're just letting it continue on um, yeah yeah it's uh it's one thing to like notice uh the system in the way that it 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 goes wrong you know but then like there are there are lots of ill-conceived notions about how to fix that you know like like you'd mentioned that soviet idea of that forced redistribution of wealth and resources like that you know like there's no um non-violent way to go about that you know like it, it does violence to wh whomever you are doing that to you know like and uh i it, it's just one of those things that there's no you know, there's not there's not a lot of easy ways around um, 
you know the uh what would you what would you say like the um how, how things sort of clump on either end of the spectrum you know like what is it like uh uh to those who have much will be given much in that sense you know it's like it's like that's like almost like an, a law of nature in some senses you know like jeff bezos is only going to have more money you know like it's never going to go down basically like his yeah, money true. begets money begets money you know and uh and i've thought about that a, a lot as well because lots of very smart people in history you know uh like i think socrates and aristotle um argued against uh interest as an as a means of wealth accumulation you know you shouldn't be able to lend money at interest and while the entire stock exchange is based on lending money at interest you know and it's like and and if you ever looked at just like a simple compounding interest chart you know that like the more you have the more you get you know (laughs) but adam how else is simply having money going to let you generate additional money right without doing any additional work (laughs) right and then so that that's like that's like the really complicated thing because if you were to like smash that to bits it's like you know, I, I don't even know. I, you know, I can't even, I couldn't even, there, there are so many things that could potentially happen. It's, it would be impossible yeah. to be like, yeah, okay, this is the right way to go. You know? Um, I, I love that we got into macroeconomics, a field that I, I am so underprepared to talk about, mm. but I love that, like, you know, when you're having an honest talk about this stuff, like it, it goes there because like, how do you make a, a more just society without addressing those things? And I don't know, but I've got a quick question for you if I can. Mm, I was yeah. thinking about this before. Mm-hmm. Back to the bookshelf here. Um, as like a only child homeschooled kid who then went to boarding school in New Zealand and like steady diet of sci-fi and fantasy, like mm-hmm. very unmoored from like the present. So we talk about World War II and we talk about mm-hmm. you know, the 20s and stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that feels as real as last week in a mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. Um, especially in 2020 where like your experience of life is through a screen or through books anyway, like mm-hmm. current reality isn't all that real. Um, yeah, true. Here's a look at New York 2140. This oh, wow. is... Um, a fantastic sci-fi author called mm-hmm. Tim Stanley Robinson. He writes really, like, he wrote a lot about, you know, far future, like Mars terraforming and colonization stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is like, you know, yeah, 2140, it, it feels far away because like scientific projections of climate change get less accurate out that far. But mm-hmm. that is, if you look at actually like where the water level is and what New York looks like, mm-hmm. you've got kind of Jersey up there in the corner is like this, flooded lowlands the top of buildings visible mm-hmm. but new york of course is going nowhere because it's worth x number of trillions of dollars and it's yeah. only getting more valuable um so i'm curious to asking you sorry to flip it but like yeah. philo- i was thinking about philosophy and like it seems like philosophy mainly becomes useful in hindsight and like how do you make sense of something that's happened philosophy mm-hmm. is really good at uh, being applied kind of retroactively mm-hmm. but like uh Clinical psychology is starting to come up with terms like solastalgia. Um, there, there's other terms around like the grief we feel about the changing world, about the fact we're we are losing species. We we have fundamentally changed the chemistry, the composition, mm-hmm. of the planetary atmosphere, and that's that's causing some changes. Yeah. Um, where do you see kind of philosophy going? In like in the ways you've talked to people, like. And and have you heard much about sort of climate philosophy? Interesting. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I I um, I've been significantly underread in the areas of like climate change in particular. So like climate philosophy is not something that uh, like I you know I've ever read anything about actually. Um, Mm. And uh, you know, as far as the the role philosophy plays in everyday life, like um, you know. I find it to be some sort of like, uh, well, for me, I find it integral, right? And and that's easy for me to say because, well, six years ago, it wasn't, you know, I didn't even know. I have my, I, I keep my notes from year to year and I have notes from uh, 2014 and I have like, you know, everything, every person that I know about now is circled in question marked, right? So like it, nice. philosophy was literally not, you know, uh, not a part of my life at all. And I, I was living what I thought was a relatively... Um, normal, comfortable, laissez-faire, you know, yep. what happens, happens. I, you know, I'm going to play video games, whatever, you know, kind of lifestyle. Yep. Right. And, uh, but, but so the, the more that I've studied philosophy, not only, um, has it given me like, um, it's given my life more flavor, uh, in the sense that I'm able to, and in, in the sense that I'm able to think about things and, um, conceptualize things and work through 
common cognitive distortions and even not so common cognitive distortions. Um, and you know, that, that alone has improved my mental life, my, my mental well-being. but, mm. um, more importantly, uh, one of my favorite authors, you know, he writes that it's not the case that you'll do no philosophy in your life. It's not the case that, uh, you know, without the study of philosophy, you'll just, that will be not, you know, you just won't be doing any philosophy, right? It's, it's rather the case that you're either going to be doing good philosophy or bad philosophy, you know, like, um, and so, you know, like it's, it's, um, in my, from where I sit, no matter how well you do it or how poorly you do it, that you do it is important, you know? Um, but, but you're right in the sense that hind, uh, philosophy deals a lot with reflection, you know, you, you mm -hmm. look back, it's like post hoc, thoughts that you have you think oh i should have done this or i should have done that or if i do things this way you know but there's also like a prescriptive and projective uh you know philosophy can can project you into the future in some circumstances you know like mm. um like for instance your your moral quandary was a that was a a retroactive philosophical thought that changed the trajectory of your future you know mm -hmm. so like your your thoughts reflecting over your past guided you into what you're doing right now you know um and but you know, philosophers have thought about that as well. And there's one one of my favorite ones. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. He's a he's the father of existentialism, and he says that um, life must be lived forwards, but can only be understood backwards. You know, so it's one of those things that's like um, everything that moves you forward is as 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 uh, a product of what is behind you in some sense. You know, um, and and like the, a lot of the areas that I'm in. Um, interested in particular like existentialism and moral philosophy like those are um those help you move forward you know like helping someone um uh, uh what would you say um helping someone with their existential vacuum uh allows them you know they can be crippled by it and, and there's this one famous psychotherapist his name is victor frankel and he, he thought the existential vacuum was the uh, cause of all neurosis, or at least most uh, mental illnesses, you know, and so the existential vacuum is a general sense of meaninglessness. My life mm -hmm. has no meaning. My actions don't matter. Um, summed up in the phrase or word nihilism, you know, like, um, and so, you know, the, giving someone a, a meaning, uh, you, you help them, you know, another famous quote by Freud was something like, um, uh, one moment of beauty works back to heal all, all past moments of pain, you know? And so it's like, and, and that manifested itself in the idea of, uh, of a corrective emotional experience, uh, which is another therapeutic concept that we still, that's still used today where you, um, let's say you had a, a parent who was invalidating your whole life. Like every time you came to them and said, you know, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. Like they just shut you down and they said, no, that, you know, you just need a nap or you're just making it up. You don't want to go take the test or you don't want to go to school because whatever, you know, you're just trying to play video games. Um, and they, they just shoot you down, shoot you down, shoot you down. And then you're 25 and you go to therapy and you say something, you know, you, you tell your therapist the story. And then instead of being what your parents were, which was invalidating and dismissive, the therapist, um, validates and, um, affirms those feelings that you had and says, you know, you were anxious at those times. And like, um, it was wrong of your parents to dismiss that, you know, like that actually can help them get past, um, the hangups with their parents or what the conflicts with their parents, you know? Um, and so like that, that, and, and that's like, that's kind of where like psychotherapy and philosophy interlap, which is where I, I, I'm very interested in, you know, the first psychotherapists mm -hmm. were philosophers, um, but, but I, you know, that was kind of a roundabout way to answer your question. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, what happens behind us dictates what happens, you know, in front of us. Is, that's yep. the most succinct way I can put it. Absolutely. I, this is going to be a growing area of, of psychotherapy that needs to happen for people because, um, of course, philosophy is, is built up over time. It's built up this corpus of knowledge. And mm -hmm. and the, the incredible thing that's happening right now is that like the actual fundamentals, the the stage on which all this human drama is playing out is is shifting underneath us in a way that is is quite amazing. I'm sure there would have been quite a change in the philosophy and the psychological practices through, well, if they were very much developed uh, around, there's a, a little, they call it the Little Ice Age in Europe mm -hmm. in the 1600s, I believe. And like, there was just a, a very 
very hard winter, like three years in a row. And, you know, people were, you know, it was the time where, you know, uh, it's got a good precedent or parallel to plague times where you've got a lot of creative output, you know, like Shakespeare mm-hmm. writing a lot of plays while quarantined because of plagues. There's also a huge amount of artistic output during these times of the great, mm-hmm. um, the ice age, a little ice age. And like, we're getting summers now where it's like inhospitable to go out and we're getting like wild oscillations in environment. We're getting reduced food yields. We're, you know, COVID is, it's really, it's, it's not at all unfair to say that like COVID and climate are linked issues. So it's like, it's just the start of things. Mm. So um, if, if it's kind of like a vein that you want to keep exploring, kind of like, I hope that I am able to be introspective or like aware enough of the, the ways that my thinking around this absolutely have gotten out of whack in the last few years. And I have hopefully developed, diagnosed and corrected mm-hmm. <laughs> neuroses in this yeah. area. Um, yeah. I think, I think my wife would definitely agree that I, I have developed them. Hopefully mm-hmm. she'd agree that I've corrected them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's true of so many people in this community where um, you, know, you, you get them talking about it and you hear these, these notes of hysteria and desperation creep into um, the voice very quickly. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's endemic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, panic is contagious. Absolutely. Uh, and it's so important. Like, I, and I think in moments like that, like, so there are three tenets of psychotherapy that are necessary for all effective psychotherapy. That is genuineness, po- unconditional positive regard. And, um, oh my God, what's the last one? Genuous, unconditional positive regard. And, um, drawing a blank on the last I one. I wish I could help you. I really yeah, wish I could. I'm like, <laughs> I could throw out another positive thing. Mm. Oh man. I just, I just talked about this too. This is so upsetting to me. Um, <laughs> positive guard, genuineness. No, it's not going to come to me. Oh my God. It's that section okay. of tape. You've played it so many times it's broken. Like yeah, as a kid, you yeah. grew up with tape decks. Yeah. Yes. It, it, I'm sure it will come to me. If not, uh, you look up um, Carl Rogers' humanistic theory of psychology and, uh, you know, necessary conditions. Uh, you'll find three of them and uh, it may come to me later. But it's anyways, one. Um, not yeah. to be mistaken with Steve Rogers or Mr. Rogers. Yes, Carl yes. Rogers. Carl, Carl Rogers. Um, yeah, a- anyways, um, ba- basically that the, the important one was the one that I knew is unconditional positive regard, which means to be uh, like... Basically, if someone says something to you, for instance, like if you're in therapy and someone says something awful to you that they did, you know, or at least they think it's awful, um, you have to be, basically, you don't just react in disgust towards them, you know, um, you you validate their feelings, what, you know, their thoughts, all of that, you know, um, you're more reflective rather than like um, prescriptive. You don't say, we shouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Like they already know they shouldn't have done whatever it is they shouldn't do, you know, they, 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 people are smart, smarter than any, you know, smarter than people give other people credit for, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, basically like when people come to me with hysteric thoughts about often, I've had several people come to me with hysteric thoughts about the election or about mm-hmm. co- the COVID pandemic or what, whatever it is, like in my personal life, you know, they ask me questions. What do you think about this? What, what should I do here? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? Like that kind of stuff. Um, like the best thing you can do is is to you know have that unconditional positive regard and 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 uh, yeah. uh, genuineness. Like you can't be you can't be phony towards them. You know you can't be can't put on a mask and act like it's okay if it's not okay. Mm-hmm. You know like things are uh, you know ostensibly not okay. You know <laughs> like um, yeah. That's that's really good. There's there's a lot. Of, you know I I have to kind of take on a bit of a support person role for people in this space who are going through those and. Um, I guess like when you're talking to someone about the election or COVID, like it's, it's acknowledging that, okay, there is something acting on you. There's a reason you're feeling this way. And let's separate that out from dissecting. Is that reason valid? But it doesn't matter if the thing is valid or not. It's still a reason. It's still acting on them and they are responding to it. And I guess, you know, that, that the emotions people feel are real. Um, it's whether, you know, you have to kind of yeah, deal with the emotion as it's occurring and then get into the logic after that. Mm. makes sense the third tenant by the way is empathy it's uh <laughs> so which so, as we've determined isn't real only yes. if you live in a in a dispersed comfortable place you can have empathy no. 
Yes, yeah. So th- I, I must have eliminated it from my mind after we <laughs> had that conversation about its non-existence. It's the reason therapy sessions don't happen at busy crossroads in busy cities in bustling Asian uh, regions, you know? Mm, yes. Or any uh, regions. Yes, really, that's true. Um, and, and that's another, That's I, you know, that's a whole separate issue, but it's very problematic as because COVID sparked an, a major uptick in mental health uh concerns you know uh, mm-hmm. suicide's gone up uh, depression anxiety have both gone up like lot, lots and lots of issues have increased drastically domestic abuse has gone up although yeah. the numbers are underreported um it, it's uh you know it, there's there aren't enough therapists to work with people you know and I, I just did an episode on this actually about basically the general populace has to become therapists you have to become you know, people, untrained people are going to find themselves in the position that a therapist would typically find themselves in. And so you have to be willing, you have to be empathetic, you have to have this ability to deal with people. Um, and, and things are, you know, going to get worse as you've, as your work shows, you know, like in, with, with climate change, like things are likely to get worse, not better. Um, and so, you know, it's going to be... On that point, I, you mm-hmm. know, coming on, I, I know the premise of the show is to kind of you know, speak to that mm-hmm. uh, meaninglessness crisis, that purpose yeah. crisis that, mm-hmm. that young people are having. And I did want to very strongly say that, hey, there's, there, there's very good reasons to feel uh, purposeful. And this is, this is the right time to engage on these topics. And they are big and they are far reaching, but um I've talked to so many young people involved in the the climate community, people leading marches, you know, but e- even the people who were at the back of the protest marcher who were, you know, supporting from home, like this is, you know, we'll, we'll hear from our parents or, you know, grandparents like, oh, you know, you, you, did, you didn't have a Vietnam War to protest. You didn't have a nuclear free movement in New Zealand. You didn't have a this, you didn't have a that. It's like, no, we've got we've got a purpose and a movement for, you know, like every day of our lives we live right now is a really important day and opportunity because we live in a very important time. Um, there's, there's like a big movement going on. There's a lot of positive ways to get involved. There's a lot of people who, who have, who have been there in the, the deep trenches of existential despair and terror over this. We probably all have stories of burnout. That's very, very common. Um, so we kind of, you know, if you, if you get involved, if you feel those kind of warning signs coming on, you know, speak to someone. But uh, I, I strongly involved getting involved with with climate, mm. um, and in the way that speaks to you. Mm. Uh, if there if there was one thing that someone listening might like might be thinking, what what is I guess what is one thing they can do or one like one the first step I guess the first action they can take uh, mm. to sort of going down that road. Of, uh, rather than it being a personal action, rather than it being uh, something else on your plate, you know, stop using plastic bags, stop eating meat, stop doing this, stop doing that. They all have positive benefits, but they all ask more of you or ask a change. Um, the one thing I would say that the like the the bait on the fish hook that's going to make doing more easier than anything else is just start engaging with this through stories. Um, a good way, you know, I've heard it said, you know, start getting informed. Well, okay. We're not saying go read a scientific report or anything, but there is now good podcasts out there, not just the ones on our network. There's lots of good stuff happening in the States, even Gimlet, you know, the cool guys who do reply all have a climate show, which is something that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Um, just start listening to stories, start becoming aware of it. Um, and then the, op- the right opportunity for you will present itself through that, I'm sure. Awesome. Well, I think we're at our hour here. Um, so you just want to let people know where they can find more of your work and, and your shows and things like that? Yeah, certainly. I hope I hope this has been enjoyable for people. I'm sorry about uh, if it's if it's still in the recording. I'm sorry about my cat. I'm sorry he loves me too much. It's a problem, but hey. Um, you can find more about the work I do at Climactic through climactic.fm. That's C-L-I-M-A-C-T-I-C dot F-M. So as in the opposite of anticlimactic. Nice and easy because we live in climactic times. And Mm. even if we're not all climate scientists or, you know, we don't all have to be EMTs to still be living through a health crisis. We're all living through a climate crisis as well. 
um, yeah, so climactic.fm, find a good show there that uh, speaks to you and check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Adam. It's been a lot of fun. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time to watch this episode of Will Work for Purpose. If you found anything here interesting, you can always leave a comment below or email me at mosley at tweakingo.com. Uh, If you were watching this podcast on YouTube, you can find uh, audio versions of it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else major podcasts are found. Uh, So thanks for watching, and uh, we'll see you in the next one.